Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. Well, as I said, we are actually doing a week of Revelation wrap-up this this morning. Kind of a little bit of a rewind, looking at some big picture things. As we've been in Revelation, uh, we said one of the keys to understanding Revelation is understanding the big picture, especially the Old Testament. Uh, Certainly, Revelation has its challenging parts. Uh, We didn't certainly solve all of the problems and answer all the questions, but hopefully we made some great progress. I am reminded of a quote supposedly attributed to Mark Twain. Uh, Here's what he said. It's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. Uh, That always makes me chuckle a little bit. So whatever questions we still have, however much we don't understand, I think it does come down to the fact of wrestling with what we do understand as being what's most important. As we've been in this series, again, we've tried to place ourselves back into the first century listeners that heard this letter read. And one thing we pointed out a lot was that Revelation uses metaphors, symbols, and just ways of expressing things, uh, language that is ancient, that automatically brought to mind certain things in the minds of the ancient listeners. Uh, That's certainly true in our day as well. In just one second, you're going to see a little video play. And that video contains uh, one or two phrases that are known across our country, representing a particular time, a particular event, and the importance of that event. Uh, I could quote those words, and you would know exactly what I'm referring to. And when you see the video play, you're going to know exactly what it's about, but you understand that because you're in sort of the United States context. Uh, Take a look at the video. explain that. You know where that's from. You know, you know what it represents. When you hear the phrase, one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind, you know exactly the context of that statement. And if somebody else in another context refers to that, you know the magnitude of what they're trying to express. Some kind of new endeavor, some new endeavor into exploration. You know that that comes from the landing on the moon, and it shapes our culture. It's a touch point. We understand it. Same thing is true for the book of Revelation. As John uses metaphors and symbols that are highly picturesque, people in John's world, 
have an understanding of what he was talking about. As modern listeners, we need to kind of go back into that world to try to understand as much as we can. Uh, We often say that scripture is not written to us. Scripture is written for us. Scripture was written to the people in that day. There were letters to various churches scattered around. It was written directly to them, answering questions they were asking, dealing problems, dealing with problems they were struggling with. In our modern world, it's not written to us, but it is written for us. We can take the principles that God showed to them and apply them to our day, but it's written to them, but for us. We especially focused on that in the fall, and we launched a series on September the 11th, and we started out by looking at the seven churches in Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 says this, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, witness. Right out of the chute, John says, to these seven churches. And so for a good part of the fall, we actually spent time looking at each of the letters to the seven churches. And we recognized those seven churches were literally gatherings of followers. That uh, shows the area of modern-day Turkey. Uh, where these churches are located in Asia Minor. It'll zoom in a little bit, and you'll see actually the red dots there in Asia Minor for the churches that actually received the letter of Revelation. You can see Jerusalem down there on the far right. You can also see the island of Patmos, where as best as we know, this letter of Revelation was written, and then it was circulated among these churches, probably along some kind of mail route or trade route that connected them, and there were gatherings of followers of Jesus in these towns that would hear the letter of Revelation read to them. Verse 5 and 6, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. You know, just one small thought of how important it is to actually be connected to a gathering of followers of Jesus. It's important to gather together on a Sunday morning. You heard opportunities about other opportunities to gather together in smaller clusters of environments where we can have dialogue about the truth of God's word, its application to our lives. Being together doesn't make us right with God, but it strengthens us to walk in being right with God. It strengthens our lives to be lived in a way that's connected with others, and it applies God's truth to our lives. And so one of the things we often remind folks here at Southridge is, it's, I mean, it's great to come through the doors, and it's awesome, but it's so important to be in some kind of committed relationships where we gather together to encourage, love, exhort, and serve one another. Well, as I said this morning, we're going to take a little bit of a big picture look at a Revelation Rewind. Uh, One of our goals for Built Together 2025 that we introduced a number of months ago was understanding the storyline of Scripture. 
At least for me, I grew up in an environment where I heard uh, stories of Scripture regularly, but at least for me, there were all kinds of dots. There were lots of dots of truths of who God was, uh, lots of dots of what we're supposed to believe, but I really never got too much of a sense of the Bible all being one complete story from Genesis to Revelation. And so we're going to go through the storyline of Scripture this morning. We did that back in January. We reviewed a couple of times since then. And we're going to connect some dots to Revelation as well. So we're going to jump in. Just right out of the chute, remember that there's a lot of connection between Genesis chapter 2, which is the first book in the Bible that gives us the account of creation. There's a lot of connection between Genesis chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 21 and 22 that tells us about the new creation. Those two are connected. They're the bookends of the Bible. Uh, all the Bible books aren't necessarily chronologically arranged, but Genesis does begin in the beginning, and Revelation does belong at the end. So, in Revelation, in Genesis chapter 2, there's a river watering the garden that flowed from Eden. In Revelation 22, there's a water, there's a river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God. In Genesis 2, in the middle of the garden, there's a tree of life. In Revelation chapter 22, there's a tree of life. In Genesis 2, there's a marriage between Adam and Eve. In Revelation 21 and 22, there's a marriage between Jesus and his church, between Jesus and those who belong to him, between Jesus and his bride, the church. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve attempt to cover themselves with leaves. In Revelation chapter 22, we're told about the leaves from the tree of life that are for for the healing of the nations. In Genesis chapter 2, we find a garden. In Revelation chapter 22, we find a garden city where the potential of the land is fully maximized. As we said, Genesis gives the account of God placing Adam and Eve In the Garden of Eden, he creates them to bear his image. He creates them to be his representatives among his creation. And notice what he says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. I'll highlight some words. He says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. And notice what he's supposed to do to work or serve it and to take care or guard and keep it. So just kind of like tuck that on your mind, and verses should be on the screens. If you could put them on the screens, that'd be great. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Uh, I think it'll be up there in a moment. There we go. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work or serve it and to take care that is guard and keep it. Just kind of like note those two things, work, care, serve, guard, and keep, because they're going to show up again. That's why Adam and Eve are in the garden. When God places Adam and Eve in the garden, he gives them some restrictions. Uh, they're not supposed to eat of, a, of two particular trees. And it's basically a test of whether or not Adam and Eve acknowledge that their life comes from God or if they think they can have a better life independently on their own. Unfortunately, Adam and Eve choose to live independently of God. They choose to make the choice of we're self-sustaining beings, 
and they eat of this tree that they're told not to eat of. As a result of that, uh, they're kicked out of the garden. They're separated from the one who created them. Uh, They walked with God in the garden. They had fellowship. They had communion with God in the garden. But as a result of disobeying God, they're thrown out of the garden. Here's what we find in Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. He, that is Adam and Eve, must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Listen to these next words. It'll be in the screens. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, 22 and 23. There we are. Uh, So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden. So Adam and Eve are placed in the garden. They're to serve it. They're to keep it. They're to guard it. They're to work the land. They become separated from God. And they're banished from the garden of Eden. They're banished from communion. They're banished from fellowship with God. Verse 24, again on the screens. After he, the Lord God, drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. One other little detail here. I want you to keep in mind the guarding, the serving, the keeping that we mentioned earlier. Notice also they're banished and they go to the east. It says, um, there, uh, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim in a flame, flaming sword. So they're banished. They, their movement is east. They're banished out of the garden. Well, as we've said with the storyline of scripture... The whole Old Testament is the sense of anticipation that God is not going to simply let that banishment go. He's not going to simply allow humanity to be banished forever. Instead, the whole story of the Old Testament is anticipation of God saying, I want to be with my people again. I want restored relationship. I want restored communion with them. And so the book of Genesis moves on. There's a tower called Babel where human beings get together and they they build a city, they build a tower to make a name for themselves, to establish again their independence, their self-sufficiency. Eventually you run into guys like Abraham. And God says to Abraham, Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless all of the people of the earth. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has a son named Joseph. Eventually, the people of Israel that God is working with as his chosen nation to eventually bring about his plan of salvation is brought into the country of Egypt where they're in bondage. And so they're in servitude to Egypt. God sends along Moses after Israel serves the land of Egypt for 400 years. God sends this guy named Moses. This Moses I want you to deliver my people, lead them out of Egypt to a land that I'm going to give you. Well, they leave Egypt. They travel through what is called the wilderness, basically a place where they kind of wander around on their way to this land that God is going to give them. And in the wilderness, they're told to build a tabernacle. 
It's one of the most significant things of anticipation in the Old Testament. The tabernacle is not a modern-day church building. The tabernacle was actually a physical place, was kind of a tent-like place in the beginning. Later on, it was more a permanent structure, but it was a a tent-like place where God's presence dwelt among his people. It was a place where they would meet with him. Notice what it says in Numbers chapter 3, verse 8. The verse will be in the screens. And notice, pick out some of the words that we looked at earlier. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. This is God's instructions to the priests that are taking care of the tabernacle. They shall take care. It's the words that are tend and keep. Where do we see them before? Garden of Eden, right? All of the furnishings of the tent meeting, along with the duties of the sons of Israel to do, that is to serve the service of the tabernacle. Where do we see that idea of serve before? Garden of Eden, right? And so God brings the tabernacle. He says, build a tabernacle. And you're supposed to relate to that tabernacle. The priests are to relate to the tabernacle in a similar way that Adam and Eve were instructed to behave in the Garden of Eden. They're supposed to serve in the tabernacle. They're supposed to guard it and keep it. In other words, just like the Garden of Eden was once where God's presence dwelt with Adam and Eve, Now humanity is fallen. We're separated from God, but God desires to dwell. He dwells in the tabernacle, and the same language is used of the tabernacle as was used of the Garden of Eden. Serve in the tabernacle. Protect it. Guard it. It's my presence. I'm not content to walk away from humanity. Instead, I'm intent to somehow get back to the Garden of Eden. And so there's a tabernacle that represents just a small microcosm of what the Garden of Eden used to be. Notice verse 31. Again, the next verse. Make a curtain of blue and scarlet yarn. And finally, twisted linen with cherubim woven into it by a skilled worker. Again, this was woven into the fabric of the cloth that covered the Holy of Holies. Cherubim that we saw earlier in the Garden of Eden. By the way, if you look at the text as well, when you came into the tabernacle, guess which way the the tabernacle faced? It faced east. And so if you came into the east, remember where Adam and Eve were banished from the garden? They went eastward. And so the walk back into the tabernacle is literally walking back in the direction from which Adam and Eve were banished. The tabernacle, the temple always faced east. And so you came back into the entrance, back into God's presence from the reverse direction from which they were booted out of the Garden of Eden. God is saying, my intent is to dwell again with human beings. My intent is to deal with the banishment. My intent is to bring reconciliation. Inside the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle was an Ark of the Covenant the Ark of the Covenant were, there were a number of things, but among them were the Ten Commandments, which obviously the people could not live up to in perfection. 
And so there needed to be some kind of payment, some kind of acknowledgement that they would fall short of being in the presence of God. They need some kind of covering for their sin, their unrighteousness. And so verses 17 and 18 of Exodus 25, here's what it says. Make an atonement cover. That's what it was called, an atonement cover of pure gold. Two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. And make two cherubim out of the hammered gold at the ends of the cover. A reminder again, God's presence is, is, is guarded. It's protected. There's cherubim. God desires to be with us, and yet he can't be because we're far from him. We're separated from him, and yet he wants to welcome us back into his presence. That's the story of Scripture. That's the anticipation of the Old Testament and the tabernacle. The sacrifices are a huge part of what it means to anticipate that God is at work bringing about the reconciliation that we had back in the Garden of Eden. Eventually, Jesus comes through the incarnation. He's born in Bethlehem's manger. He dies on a cross. He's buried. He's raised from dead. He ascends. And throughout his life, Jesus teaches. He does miracles. He heals. He shows love and grace, mercy and compassion. He speaks the truth of God's word to us. But in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, there's a verse that we can kind of quickly go over that's pretty significant. In Matthew chapter 1, 1, verse 21, as the announcement of Jesus' birth is being given, here's what it says. She, that is Mary, will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, we're going to just dive into two things there. Number one, save and sins. We often think of sin simply as individually bad things that we do. And they certainly are. They're ways that we fall short of God's glory. But less than being bad things that we do, sin relates to people that we are. It's not just bad things we do. It's people who we are. We're estranged from God. And so when people heard that announcement that Jesus would save his people from their sins, they automatically thought, man, in the Old Testament, our sins constantly kept us from enjoying fellowship with God. They would think back to Assyria. They would think back to Babylon that took exiles from their homeland of Israel back into Babylon, into Assyria, they would think of being far away from where they were designed to be. That's what their sins did in ancient times. Because of their sinfulness, they were for many years in exile. They couldn't enjoy fellowship with God in the land as he intended them to do. And so when they heard he will, we will be forgiven of their sins. They're thinking, wow, we're going to be forgiven of what has caused us to be exiled from God. We're going to be forgiven for what has caused us to be estranged from God's purposes in our lives. It says, he saves his people from their sins. We can quickly throw around that word save, and that's cool. I'm fine with that. Maybe if you're from church, you know kind of what that word means. 
But if you didn't really grow up in church, that probably seems pretty foreign and like save. What, like, what do I need to be saved from? The word save means to rescue from danger, rescue from destruction. Can also mean to save someone who is suffering from a disease and make them well again, restore them to health. Means to preserve one who is in danger of destruction, to rescue them. It's interesting how this word saved is translated other ways throughout the New Testament. You might remember if you know some of your New Testament and some of the stories of Jesus healing, that there was a woman who came to Jesus. She had been an issue of blood for many, many years. She comes to Jesus in a number of the gospels this account is given. And here's what she says. She says, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. That word well is the same word saved. If I just touch his garments, I'm going to get well. It says Jesus, she touched Jesus' garments. And it says she goes away and she's healed. She's well. That word healed and well is the exact same word of saved his people from their sins. They're healed from their sins. They're rescued from their sins. They're made well from what brings them estrangement with God. A number of times in the New Testament, in the Gospels, Jesus heals lepers. He heals the blind. And he says, your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. Your faith has brought you restoration. Your faith has made you whole. Your faith has saved you. And so Jesus comes to bring forgiveness, to rescue us, to heal us from the brokenness that we have from Adam and Eve's decision in the Garden of Eden. So what it means to be saved is to be rescued, is to be made whole, is to be healed from our separation with our Creator, to be healed from that which brings us alienation from the communion that we had with God in the Garden of Eden. It's what it means to be rescued, saved. He shall save his people from their sins. Moving on. When Jesus ascends to heaven, 50 days later, the Holy Spirit indwells followers of Jesus. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit indwells us. And throughout the period that we're presently living in, throughout the period that John's listeners were living in, right here, following Jesus' ascension, following the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the seven churches that we looked at, they're right here. We're somewhere in this neighborhood here. And it's a time of expansion of God's purposes, his cause, his kingdom, his message in this world. It's a time of expansion. And we look forward to the day when Jesus returns again. There's a final judgment. The books are read. There's a new creation, a new restoration, and all things are made new. Several, few implications for that. Number one, in light of that, in light of that, we worship. In light of that, we worship. Remember in Revelation chapter one, 
John falls and he worships because he sees a vision of Jesus. He worships Jesus. Revelation 22 verse 9, John falls before an angel. This angel says, don't worship me. Here's the verse, Revelation 22 verse 9. And he said to me, don't do that. In other words, don't fall down before me and worship me. I am a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of the scroll. Worship God. That word worship is actually based on an older word that literally meant worship. What you give worth to. Friends, listen. This is the God that we worship. Does your heart delight in such a grand and great God? Does your heart leap for joy at this God who continues to pursue us? Does your heart have a sense of joy and a thrill of hope for this God who's restoring his story, this God who's restoring all things. Does your heart count that as being what's of ultimate worth? So easy to regard other things as being more worthy than God. But this is the God we worship. This is the God that we give ultimate worth to. This is the God that makes our hearts filled with joy. This is the God that gives us hope and confidence because this is the God who's writing the story. Listen, friends, your story is not written by your worst enemy. Your story is not written by someone who mistreated you. Your story is not written by those who wish to do you harm. Your story is not even written by you. Your story is written by God. And it should give you hope and it should give you joy to know that he's pursuing you and it's him that you worship. And by the way, if that's the case, it also means that you should be able to rest. If you're, if you're holding something else as of being of ultimate value, your life will not be able to be rest, restful. You'll be busy providing for yourself. You'll be busy making sure that every last thing is taken care of. But if you're a person of worship, you should be a person of rest. Because you know that someone else is your provider. You know that someone else is your father. That it's not up to you to meet all of your needs. But the God of heaven walks with you, pursues you, is with you. Secondly, not only do we worship, but we serve. We serve. Revelation chapter 5, verse 10. You have made him, made, made, made them, meaning us, we as followers of Jesus, to be a kingdom and priests, to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. What we're literally called to do as followers of Jesus is to literally be kind of like priests that served in the tabernacle. We're called to be like Adam and Eve who are priests in the Garden of Eden who represented God's care among creation, who, who were avenues of his love to those around, around, who are spokespeople of God's truth. 
who are representatives of his righteousness, his justice, his grace, and his mercy. We are called to be servants of God, priests of God, as the message of Jesus permeates our world, as tribes, nations, and languages are impacted by the gospel of Jesus. Dale Loesch, who leads Crossworld, it's an organization that sends out a number of missionaries or spokespeople for Jesus across the world. We actually support several ministry partners that serve from Crossworld. He says this, on my recent trip to North Africa, a 12-year veteran missionary told me this. We have seen a greater response to the gospel among Muslim people in the past two or three years than in the history of our country. That's again, somebody telling Dale Loesch that, somebody from, that's living in North Africa as a veteran missionary there who's been there for 12 years, says we've seen a greater response to the gospel among Muslim people in the past two to three years than in the history of our country. Listen, friends, don't kid yourself. God's purposes, his truth is expanding in our world. Tim Chester says this, the Soviet Union set out to crush the church, but the church outlived it. When missionaries were thrown out of China, many people feared for the future of the church, but the church has prospered and grown rapidly under persecution. Between 1975 and 1978, President Mengistu of Ethiopia implemented what was called the Red Terror. One and a half million people died and church buildings were closed down. When Mangustu fell, no one was sure what would remain of the church. But it emerged that Christians had been meeting in homes and unseen, the church had not only survived, but had grown. Listen, friends, we serve a living God. We serve a God that is expanding out into tribes and nations and languages. As followers of Jesus, we're not simply reservoirs. We're channels and avenues and representations of God's love and his mercy and his grace and truth in our world. We worship, we serve, we also expect. We also expect. Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Last week, we said that three times in Revelation 22, it says, Jesus says, I am coming soon. Two other times, it says, these things must soon take place. Verse 10, the time is near. But three times, Jesus says directly, I am coming soon. A couple things with that, because it's been 2,000 years. Like, what do we do about that? Well, a couple things. Number one, there could also be the sense of, of quickly as well as soon. In other words, throughout Scripture, we're told that Jesus could come literally at any moment. It will be unexpected. It's going to come quickly. And so there's a sense of, of that being soon. But also what seems to be happening is that you go across this timeline. Here's creation Here's separation where we're separated from God. We're banished from Eden. Here's hundreds and thousands of years in the Old Testament. 
There's a sense of anticipation. Jesus comes. He's born in Bethlehem's manger. He lives a sinless life. He dies on a cross. He's buried in a tomb. He's raised from the dead. He ascends to heaven where he is right now beside the right hand of God. The Holy Spirit comes. Holy Spirit indwells followers of Jesus. There's a season of expansion and growth as the message of Jesus goes across our world. And literally, the last thing on the storyline is Jesus comes again. And so the idea of soon also carries with it, it, with it. All of this has been accomplished. For thousands of years, God has been faithful. God has been at work. And there's literally one thing left for Jesus to come again. He's, Jesus, I'm coming soon. In other words, there's nothing left to be accomplished There's nothing else on the storyline. The only thing left is for Jesus to come. And so it's the only thing left. And it could come quickly, suddenly, soon. And we're to be ready. You know, I don't know what that looks like for you. Maybe knowing that Jesus comes soon, could come soon is living in more regular communion with him. So that when he comes, you're kind of not a stranger to conversing with him. Maybe you live in communion with him. Maybe you speak to him more regularly in prayer because he's coming soon. Maybe that looks like on your knees. Maybe it simply looks like prayer being the conversation of your life with God. Maybe it looks like turning away from certain sins that drag you down. Maybe it looks like confessing where you fall short and through the power of the Holy Spirit, living in greater obedience. Maybe it means resting. Maybe it means taking a nap this afternoon because it's not your responsibility to keep everything together. I remember hearing an interview a number of years ago with this woman who was given a diagnosis of cancer and she was gonna, her life was going to be gone in three or four months. She ended up living a little bit longer, but she was asked, like, man, knowing that you were going to pass in three or four months, how did that impact your life? Her response was, I have kids and grandkids. She said, during that three or four months, I made lots of pancakes. I had breakfast with my family more often than I otherwise would have. Maybe knowing Jesus is going to come soon or could come soon, maybe you make more pancakes. Maybe you rest Maybe you love more intentionally those around you. Maybe you're a little bit less wrapped up in your deal and a little more in tune to God's deal and his work in the lives around you. Well, in just a second, we're going to bring our whole series to a close and the service to a close by celebrating communion. Let me ask our team to come up and as preparation to share in communion, where we take a piece of bread and drink some juice that are reminders of Jesus' broken body, his shed blood. We're going to sing the song Amazing Grace because this storyline is about amazing grace. That storyline is about God saying, 
I don't want humanity to be banished. It's about God's amazing grace. It's about him pursuing us. It's about him bringing salvation, rescue from destruction, restoration, and healing. So as we get ready to take communion, let's sing these four verses of amazing grace because that's what the story is about. It's a story of grace. I'm not going to ask you to stand. You can remain seated. We're going to sing this reflectively. We're going to sing this prayerfully. We're going to sing this with a sense that this is what the story is about. This is the God we worship. This is the God that we serve. This is the God that we expect. He's going to come back someday in the person of Jesus. Sing these verses together. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I Jesus gave us elements made from his creation as symbols of him giving life to us. We need bread. We need drink to sustain our physical lives. And Jesus uses bread Jesus' wine or the fruit of the grape to picture the fact that we receive life from his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That we're welcomed back into communion. We're welcomed back into the fellowship 
of Eden. We're welcomed back into the new creation at the end through Jesus. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 42, it says that people were saying this around the cross. Listen to these words. He saved others. He healed others. He rescued others. He cannot save himself. At the cross, Jesus refuses to save himself. He refuses to rescue himself. He refuses to hold on to his relationship with the Father in heaven so that he can save rescue, restore, bring healing to his relationship with you. He refuses to save himself so that he can save you. He refuses to rescue himself so that he can rescue you. When we take communion, we take a cup of juice, a wafer. We take it to our seats and then we eat it together. If you're a follower of Jesus, if, you've, if you're united to Christ in faith, we invite you to do this with us. It's not important for you to be a member of Southridge. This is kind of foreign. If you would rather just be remain seated, you're absolutely welcome to do that. Just remain seated during this time, reflect, continue to think about what's been said. Take the elements back to your seat and we'll take them together. There's four stations up at the front. There's two in the corner of the balcony. Some of the aisles can stand and move to a station near you. Usually the ones up front are a little bit more clear. Um, take the elements back to your seat and then we'll take them together. Rich Velotis 
make some of these connections. He says, Jesus goes to the garden of Gethsemane to be obedient to the Father, undoing Adam and Eve's disobedience in the garden of Eden. Adam and Eve hide behind a tree, naked, covered in shame. Jesus hangs on a tree, naked, and he conquers shame. Adam and Eve begin in paradise, but are forced outside the gates due to the curse. Jesus dies outside the gates, but ends up in paradise due to the cross. Adam and Eve's sin ushered a curse of thorns. Jesus wears a crown of thorns as he ushered in salvation from sin. Jesus took a cup of juice and some bread. He said, eat this bread and drink this cup in remembrance of the fact that my body has been broken for you. My blood has been shed for you to save his people from their sins, to bring rescue, to bring deliverance, to bring restoration. Let's take the cup and the bread together. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. Some of you may know that he was a, initially a slave trader. Came to repentance and embraced Jesus. He said this, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. Let's stand and sing these final verses of amazing grace.
again, we'll close with the final verse of Revelation 22. Revelation 22, verse 21. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with God's people. And everyone who agreed said, Amen. 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 And God bless.